Well, good morning, Northies. I, I wonder if you've ever had this experience where you've uh, you've plugged an appliance in, like like this old toaster here, and switched it on, and the safety switch trips and the power goes out. Uh, look, I've got to uh, unplug it and, and reset things and plug it in again. So uh, just give me a moment and uh, I'll be right back with you. Well, that's a whole lot better. Good morning again. Good to be with you here uh, as uh, I bring the word of God and um, share what he's laid on my heart for you. Now that I've sorted out that uh, that toaster and that problem with the uh, with the safety switch, and I guess in a way, silence, solitude, and the Sabbath are a little bit like a safety switch. It's a time where we stop, we unplug our lives for what's happening, we draw aside, um, and spend some time with the Lord, and we rest and we reset, just like I had to reset that safety switch, and hear His still small voice. It's a time where we allow God to access into the deep corners of our life and develop our relationship with him. It's a day of rest, a day of worship. It's not meant to be an obligation, but a privilege. But because we're inclined to look after our own needs and our lives get so busy, it actually is a command. But the Sabbath day isn't an inconvenience, it's a gift. Just like the safety switch in a house it's actually a gift, even though we might lose the lights and the TV and the computer might go off when we were just about to save some work. It really is a gift that looks after us. I like what Steve said last week when he was talking about moments of rest, but the Sabbath not being that, but rather living from a place of rest. And living from a place of rest is such an amazing concept, and in my mind it creates this sense of, of peace and comfort and calm. But there's an active side to the Sabbath as well. And at times that may override that sense of peace and rest. As well as building a relationship with God and allowing Him to work in us, the Sabbath causes us to consider the influences of the world that are around us and pushing in on us from the outside. And as we consider those influences, there may be reasons for us to actually push back and resist them. Romans chapter 12 verse 2 says, Don't copy the behaviour and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Now, there's always pressure to copy the behavior and the customs of the world. But if we permit ourselves to be carried along by them and don't make an effort to push back and to resist, therefore allowing godly aspects of the culture to capture our hearts and our minds, Will we ever truly know God's will for us? To understand this idea more, let's turn to the Bible. And I want to look at two very similar passages that have a slight but significant difference. They're the two passages in the Bible that talk about the Ten Commandments. And they're actually written about 40 years apart. We've read one of them during our series on the Sabbath. 
It's from Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest, dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, and any foreigners living among you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them. But on the seventh day he rested. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. Clearly the theme of that is rest. That commandment was given to the Israelites at Mount Sinai about two months after fleeing Egypt. Everything was a fresh memory for them. Life as a slave, escaped from Egypt, journeying through the wilderness with whatever goods they could carry. The sense of urgency and hurry facing the Red Sea and the Egyptian army bearing down on them. And then the bewilderment of crossing the Red Sea on dry land. I can only imagine there'd be heightened emotions. They'd be exhausted in every possible way. This Sabbath command was a day of rest to break that cycle and cause them to unplug and to reset. That verse tells us that God is the creator. You're in safe hands. There's a sense of comfort and assurance. They don't have to worry. God who made the heavens and the earth is with them. Be still and know that I am God. That was given to the Israelites at the start of their journey towards the promised land, a journey that should have taken only a few months but actually took 40 years. That was due to the complaining, lack of trust in God, disobedience, lack of gratitude, and God determined that none of the Israelites who left Egypt, except Joshua and Caleb and all the children, would enter the promised land. Only those children who were with them at the time of Exodus and those who were born along the way. So 40 years after the Israelites left Egypt, they found themselves on the verge of entering the Promised Land. They were camped in the Jordan Valley just east of the Jordan River. And Moses recognised the significance of this moment and he gathered all of the people together to remind them of what God had done. It was his farewell address because he too didn't get to go to the Promised Land. Moses gave a history of where they had been, what had happened along the way, and a repeat of the laws and the commands that God had given. It was a very intentional reminder as they were about to enter the promised land. And we look at that passage now in Deuteronomy chapter 5, and you'll see that the first few verses of that are almost identical to what I've just read out in Exodus. But I want to skip down to verse 15 of that passage. And at the end of the comment about the, uh, the Sabbath and not doing any work, the sons and daughters and male and female servants, etc., 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 God says, or Moses rather, says to them, Remember that you were once slaves in Egypt, but the Lord your God brought you out with his strong hand and powerful arm. That is why the Lord your God has commanded you to rest on the Sabbath day. They were commanded to rest and remember. You see, most of those people 
had not been slaves in Egypt. And they needed to be reminded and taught about this so they could fully value what God had done for them. And as a nation, renew the covenant that God had made with his people. In one generation, we can turn from God. Forty years between these two passages necessitated a reminder of where the people had come from and how God had rescued them. If something's not in our experience, well, it's not in our mind, and it really can't influence and direct our future. They were about to head into a place where they would experience pleasures they'd never known before, a life of freedom, comfort, plentiful supplies of food. They used to be slaves. Now they could leave all of that behind. The customs and lifestyle of a slave in Egypt is forgotten. Now they're free. You see, there's a need to focus on God when we go through those difficult wilderness times. But when we move from an experience to something better, a place flowing with milk and honey, a place of plenty, it's easy to move away from that closeness of God because we're no longer in need. But what did it mean to be a slave in Egypt? How did they get to be slaves in Egypt? Well, we go back 400 years and we remember the story of Joseph and his dreams and his amazing coat of many colours. He was elevated to a position of authority in Egypt where he was able to organise the store of grain during plentiful times so that when famine came, there was enough food. And people from different countries came to buy food from Egypt, including Joseph's family. And his family settled there. That family grew and eventually that family became a nation, the nation of Israel. A new pharaoh who didn't know about Joseph came to power and he was nervous about the growing number of Israelites. He thought that if enemies attacked Egypt, the Israelites would join them and they would outnumber the Egyptians. And I read from Exodus chapter 1. So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. They appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labour. They forced them to build the cities of Pithom and Ramesses, as supply centres for the king. But the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more the Israelites multiplied and spread, and the more alarmed the Egyptians became. So the Egyptians worked the people of Israel without mercy. They made their lives bitter, forcing them to mix mortar and make bricks, and do all the work in the fields. They were ruthless in all their demands. The Egyptians, sorry, the Israelites as slaves, were forced to build cities as supply centres for Pharaoh, not even purposed to build houses, but to accommodate Pharaoh's stuff. <laughs> See, Egypt was synonymous with abundance, and Egypt had a long history of building and growing and abundance that showed off their skills and their accomplishments. The pyramids were actually built about a thousand years before Moses. Egypt was seen as the breadbasket of the region, due to the Nile, which provided food and water and transport and protection from enemies, and the annual flood of the Nile provided rich soil for farms. Because accumulation of wealth and achievement were important and gave them a sense of security in life, they had an intense desire for security in the afterlife. And we know that mummies were bodies that were carefully preserved so they'd be in good condition for the afterlife though I could never figure out if that was the case, why they removed the brains from the people they were mummifying. Perhaps you don't need brains in the afterlife, I don't know. 
But they buried the mummies with such artefacts as tools and food and wine and perfume and household goods. Sadly, some pharaohs were even buried with pets and servants. So for Pharaoh to create a lavish lifestyle, he needed cheap labour. And no matter how hard the Israelites worked, it was never enough. And we can read on in Exodus 5, when Moses began to ask Pharaoh for permission to leave with all of the Israelites, Pharaoh made them work even harder. Accumulation of wealth, accomplishment, never enough. Work harder. Try and create security. Need extra storage. Does that sound familiar? The Egyptian culture that enslaved the Israelites is alive and well today, and it enslaves us. It's a behaviour and custom of the world that we should resist. And I'm guilty of it as much as you. Our culture is work more, buy more, repeat. Whenever is it enough? I recently saw the heading of a YouTube clip and it said, everything I bought during lockdown. But why do we need to push back and resist this mentality? Why do we need to consider the impact on our culture, the influence that uh, is pushing on us to accumulate and achieve? Well, I believe it's simply because wherever your treasure is, there the desire of your heart will also be. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, Don't store up treasures here on earth, where moths eat them and rust destroys them, and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven, where moths and rust cannot destroy it, and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be. God's desire is that our hearts are turned towards him, that our efforts and motives strive to build a deeper relationship with him. Just think, how often does your conversation drift toward what you want and what you need rather than what you have? And not just being grateful for the things we have, being grateful for the God we have, a God who's faithful, a God who loves us, a God who rescues, a God who will supply all our needs. Have you ever considered that when you take charge of providing for yourself, you're taking the place of God? Not that we should sit back on the lounge and wait for manna from heaven or Uber Eats to fall on our laps. Remember, we do have six days to do work. But we must recognise who God is and place our ultimate dependence and trust on him. But apart from the Egyptian culture of seeking after things, and that same connection with our society today, there's other aspects of our culture we need to resist. What about this idea? The truth is as you make it to be. Just live a peaceful life. Don't offend anyone. There's no absolute truth. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. Billy Graham observed, our society strives to avoid any possibility of offending anyone except God. Or what about this? The vast differences that we have in health and health standards and education across the world. 
even within Australia and even in Newcastle? Do we take the attitude of Egypt where we build cities as supply centres for ourselves? Or do we open up the gates of those cities for those in need? In James 1 verse 27 in the Passion Translation, we read that true spirituality that is pure in the eyes of our Father God is to make a difference in the lives of orphans and widows in their troubles and to refuse to be corrupted by the world's values, to refuse to push back, to resist and not be corrupted by the world's values that take our attention away from God. And when we take a further look at society, we have to admit that apart from our churches, the concept of Christianity is nominal at best. And at worst, there's corrosion and even attempts at exterminating the influence of a Christian worldview. Do we turn a blind eye to all of this or do we resist and push back? We're not slaves to our culture. And our Sabbath remembering reminds us of that. We're image bearers of God. And as such, there are times we have to take a stand and push back on that which is ungodly in our society. As I finish, I want to challenge you not to let this message just wash over your head. What is it about our culture that God is calling you to resist? Is it something within you, like an attitude of accumulation or accomplishment, working harder to get more, but never having enough and finding that that is our focus instead of God? Or is it something in wider society that's a burning issue for you that calls you to action? If so, here's the good news. In the second of the two passages about the Sabbath, as well as the statement about being slaves in Egypt, did you notice the reference to God's strong hand and powerful arm? It's a passage about redemption, salvation, God hearing our cries and responding, and the might and power of God in action. Whatever God is calling us to do, we don't have to do it alone, and we don't have to do it under our own steam. The Sabbath is rest. It's hearing that quiet voice, but it's also resistance and a call to action, and it's upon us every day. I started with the toaster, and I'm going to end with the toaster. Every day, when you push the handle of the toaster down and hope that the safety uh, switch doesn't trigger, let that be a reminder to unplug from the culture of our world that seeks to enslave us and reset as one who is willing to stand and resist as an image bearer of the one who rescues and redeems. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of Sabbath. We thank you for all that it means. And Jesus, I pray that you would quicken in our minds and in our hearts what you want to say to us today. Speak to us, Lord, as we consider the influence that the culture has on us. Let us know where to stand and where to resist and to push back so that our attention is always on you. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.